once you get to the book of Philemon, you're going to see that it is very short. It is literally half a page, not even a full page. So I thought it would be nice uh, to take a break from our normal book studies that last about a year and a half on average, uh, and to say that, hey, we knocked out a book in a Sunday, right? Uh, I may be just a little competitive, so this is... No, not at all. Uh, Mike and I have had a few classes together, and that uh, has proved that we normally improved our grades, and it wasn't for the good reason. It was because we both wanted to do better than the other person. So, um, in a way, this is a little uh, competitive, but in all seriousness, the reason that I wanted to look at Philemon this morning uh, was because of something that a guy named N.T. Wright said. So for those of you who don't know, N.T. Wright is one of the uh, greatest New Testament theologians of our time. And he has just written his magnum opus, this book on Paul. It's this two-volume set. It's like 1,500 pages. It's ginormous. Um, and he says in, in this interview that I was listening to that he wanted to write this 30 years ago. And so he realized that he had to cover a lot of ground, actually, before he got to this book. So 30 years of groundwork. Everything he's written so far, to him, would just be introduction to this book. So we're talking, this is a big deal. Anybody who's studying Paul is getting this book and buying it. And in the interview, uh, the guy that was doing the interview said, now you've started your book in a way that nobody else has. You started with the letter to Philemon. Nobody does that, right? In New Testament theology books, there's barely even an introduction into the letter of Philemon. So why would you, in your magnum opus, right, why would you choose the letter to Philemon? And he said something that made me think, huh, I think I'm going to use that, and I think I'm going to preach on it this Sunday. He said something that I will never forget. He said, the book of Philemon is like a small window. It's a small window, and if you get up right close to it, then you can see the entire landscape. So it is small, but it is jam-packed with the gospel <laughs> and with the kingdom of God, and specifically with the message of reconciliation. So if you will, turn there, and we will read the first three verses. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me give you a bit of background on this letter. Paul at this time is currently in prison. He is in chains, and he has written both a letter to the Colossians and this personal letter to Philemon. So he is delivering, or the person who is delivering the letter is delivering both the letter of Colossians and this letter to Philemon. And we find out that Philemon has to be a man of some wealth. Because he has a church that is meeting in his own home. It was very, very rare for people during this time to have their own home. Think of like the American dream, right? We all aspire to own a home and it's kind of hard. Nothing compared to back then. People did not have their own private home. If it was, it wasn't very big. Most people lived in apartment-like structures. And uh, we've actually been studying the early church with my seniors. And one of the things that kind of shock them all. When they think about the Roman Empire, they think of grand, right? We think of all the TV shows that we see that they just had a grand old time and it was wonderful. But imagine a world without soap. Imagine a world without 
running water. They had aqueducts, but not everybody had access to them. Imagine a world without indoor plumbing. Imagine a world without chimneys, and you're still cooking inside. Right? This was a place that was very filthy, where disease quickly spread, and it was very, very cramped and overpopulated in the urban areas. So the way that they would make room for more people who would move in is they would just build the buildings higher. But they didn't have building codes back then. So the top buildings, right, the, and the poor people were the ones that lived on top. Right? And so all of their family was in there, so the top buildings were more crowded than the bottom. So the higher structures were heavier than the lower, and they weren't built very well to begin with. So buildings were constantly collapsing, poor ventilation, disease. This is the normal day-to-day -day life of a Roman citizen, someone who is living in an urban center in the Roman Empire. So for Philemon to have his own house, where a church meets means that this man was wealthy. Top 1%. Very, very wealthy person. He mentions also Aphia, who is his wife, and Archbus, his son. Something that you will note, um, if you have, if you're familiar with Paul's other letters, he usually gives himself a bit more of an introduction than that. But he simply says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He doesn't mention his apostleship. He doesn't mention anything in way of authority that would give him authority over Philemon. And we're going to see that that's very intentional in this letter for what he is about to request. Um, and he is about to, as is a common practice in letters, he's going to give thanks, and he is going to tell Philemon what he's specifically praying for, for him. And this, with Paul, always gives us a clue as to what the themes will be throughout the letter. What he prays for is going to have a direct impact about what he speaks of in the next few verses. So let's read verse 4 through 7. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Okay. Those are three very packed full sentences, right? Paul does not disappoint. He is a wordy guy. So um, we see that in verse 6, we have the thesis, right? The thesis of this entire letter. And I want to unpack it for you because it can easily be glossed over um, and just kind of we can move on and I don't want us to. So verse 6 says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So when you and I think of sharing of our faith, right? This, the ESV here is a tad misleading, uh, mainly because of how we view the sharing of our faith. We automatically think that's evangelism, right? That is witnessing to other people. Sharing of our faith means I've gone out and I've witnessed. Philemon, you're doing a good job because you're the great evangelist. That might be how we would read that. That was how I read that. Until I saw that the Greek word here for sharing is koinonia. Everybody say that with me. Koinonia. All right. Learning some Greek today. Um, this is actually a, a term that has been used and abused in a lot of Christian churches. Like they name it koinonia coffee shop, koinonia, you know, anyway. Um, I was trying to teach my seniors about Epicureanism. 
and I don't know if any of y'all know this, but there's apparently some grocery store that is named Epicurean. So whenever I was talking about Epicurus and that philosophy, they're like, oh yeah, it's the like health food store. No, no, that's it's Greek philosophy. It's not, it's not a grocery store, right? So we have seen some degrading of this word, but koinonia means fellowship, or more specifically, participation. Um, it can be rendered both ways. Here, it is meaning sharing in the sense of you are sharing with each other. Not that you are sharing your faith as a witness, but you are sharing, you are partaking with each other in uh, work. So a, a way to understand it would be if you are the CEO of a company and you take on a partner, right? You and your partner have a stake in that company. If the company goes down, you and your partner are going down. So this is the idea that Paul is trying to unpack. Philemon, you and I are partners. You and I are partners in the same work. You've been doing a great job at it. And because you've been doing a great job at it, the whole church has been succeeding. Because you and I have a stake in this claim. We are partners. We are partners in Christ. Uh, Also, side note, the seniors, my senior students, have started calling Friday Fellowship Friday, which for them means they don't want to do anything. So, uh, another way that the English language, right, has lost all of its meaning. Um, But anyway, I digress. So, what is the request? What is the request that Paul is going to make? He's hinted that it has to do with partnership. That it has to do with our unity as a body. So, let's see what he is going to ask. Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Okay, let's stop there. We see that Paul has been put in a very tense situation. Philemon, being a man of wealth, being a man of means, he owns slaves. It was very common for the wealthy in the Greco-Roman Empire to have a lot of slaves. Actually, I don't know if he had quite a lot, but we at least know that he had one, Onesimus. Um, And he has run away. He has run away from Philemon and has gone to Paul. This by itself is a capital offense. Philemon is within his rights to kill Onesimus. And here we see Paul's request. He is sending him back. He is sending him back. And he says, Formerly, he became my child, meaning Onesimus has now converted to Christianity. He has converted to Christianity. He has become Paul's child. And that for Paul changes everything. That changes everything. Because we see, for Paul, the gospel is not some theoretical idea. It is a present, it is a physical reality. It is something that takes place and changes our very identity. To the point where Philemon can no longer regard Onesimus as a slave. No longer as a slave. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Onesimus... 
was a very common name for a slave, and it means useful. So Paul here is playing upon the words of Onesimus' own name. It says, formerly he was not, now he is. Right? Formerly he was dead, now he is alive. Onesimus should be regarded as a new creature, as something that has changed. So Paul is sending him back, and he says, I would have been glad, verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And here is the crux of it. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. He says, I am sending Onesimus back to you. I am sending him back. And I'm not going to force you, right? He says, I could command you. I have the right to be able to command you to do the right thing. But I am appealing you. I am begging you because of love's sake. Take him back. When you see Onesimus, you are seeing me. You are seeing my very heart. Paul has become very attached to Onesimus. In fact, because Onesimus has converted, Onesimus is a partner of Paul as well. He says, Onesimus is my partner. You are my partner. Which means that we are one. There needs to be reconciliation. Philemon is a book about reconciliation and partnership. The early church, or at least um, the early Syrian church, did not want to include Philemon in the canon. They said, we don't understand why this letter is here. It seems to be just talking about this practical issue, about the slave that's come back. There's not much theology in here. But when we read what Paul is asking, and how he is asking it, the gospel is being played out under our very noses. The gospel has to be practical. The gospel has to actually be able to be accomplished where the rubber meets the road. Here we have a picture of how to live for Christ in a very complicated world. So Paul can command it. He says, I can command you. I have the authority for you to receive Onesimus back, to not kill him, but to reconcile, to be reconciled with him. But instead he persuades Uh, Stanley Hauerwas is an ethics professor at Duke University, and he was asked the question, uh, how would you define leadership? How would you define leadership? And he responded without even thinking. He said, leadership is persuasion. Leadership is persuasion. Now, sometimes when you and I think of persuasion, we have all seen the bad kinds of persuasion, right? Right? Persuasion that looks actually more like manipulation. Persuasion that actually looks more like bullying. But Harawas and even Paul seem to hit on this idea that it is better to persuade than to command. It is better to convince than to command. This is a strategy that I use with my seniors all the time. Because they're seniors, I treat them like adults. right? And I tell them from the very beginning of my class, It's okay to disagree, even with me. 
which a lot of teachers don't really want to do, right? Especially when they're a Bible teacher, when they're teaching truths. But what they have to be able to do, and what I ultimately want them to do, is make them think. I want them to be convinced for themselves to understand this truly is the good. It's going to take root in their lives in a different way than if I had just told them, do this. Think this. Act like this. There are times and places for commands, right? I'm not a parent, so I'm assuming that's probably one of those times. Right? But once people start growing into adulthood, persuasion is always better. And the key here, the key that will change it from manipulation or bullying is love. That is the key. It is always for the sake of the good of the other. When I say love, I'm not talking about the sappy stuff they put on TV, right? Not, not that type of love. I am talking about what C.S. Lewis says is the intolerable compliment that God has chosen to love us, right? Um, I'll read you a quote here. This is from C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain. It says, when Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested, really indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. Not in a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. But the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds. We have a loving God, and that changes everything. I mentioned earlier about the living conditions of Rome. Uh, what I didn't mention was that also in this chapter, it was talking about how the Christians lived in that world. I equate it with my seniors to The Walking Dead. Any Walking Dead fans in here? No shame, right? Um, oh, man. It is such a wonderful study into humanity and evil. Anyway, I won't, I won't digress into Walking Dead. Uh, but I tell them ancient Rome is a lot like the environment of The Walking Dead. You have death can meet you at any corner, whether it's plague, whether it's crime. I mean, it was not a great place to live and to be. And so the response of pretty much every, we would say, sane human being was, I'm going to look out for my own. I'm going to look out for my family, and that's how it's going to be. So Rome experienced, for those of y'all who know your history, several devastating plagues because of all the reasons that I mentioned. And it was common practice, again, think of, I mean, the, these are not brutal people, but if someone in their family member got the plague, they would take them out of their home and lay them out on the street. Someone of their own family, they would take and they would lay out on the street because they said, I don't know how to cure this thing. The doctors have fled, the priests have fled, pagan priests, not Christian priests. So I'm going to lay these guys out here because I've got to save the rest of my family. Christians, during this time, were known for walking the streets and picking up the people who they had left and taking them into their home 
taking a person with this disease, bringing them into their house with their family and nursing them. Sometimes they would get better. So the, the author, the sociologist that does this study says, this is one of the reasons why Christianity grew. It's because some of these people just needed basic nursing. They just needed to be fed and watered. But people were so scared that they were going to die that they left them out on the street. And so when Christians brought them in, they actually gave their bodies a fighting chance. But a lot of times, the family would get sick. They would lose their lives. And the reason they did this, right, nobody else was going to go near these guys. It would be crazy. Why would any of us, if there's a disease that spreads, we don't have a cure, right? It's some kind of swine, fish, bird, flu, whatever, right? And it spreads. I'm going to protect my family. That's going to be my natural instinct. But the early church had a different one. Their natural instinct was to go out and help the stranger. And it's all back to this idea of love. If God is love, and if he doesn't play favorites, if he loves everybody, then we don't get to play favorites either. We don't get to put our family above other people. We don't get to put our family above the stranger. It is a radical, crazy idea, but that is the essence of the gospel. That is the gospel to its very core. That is the gospel that's being played out here with Philemon and Onesimus. The gospel has to play out. It has to actually work in a very complicated world. So let's keep reading. So Paul has just said, if you consider me your partner, right? You are united with me. That means you're united to Onesimus. If he has wronged you at all, this is verse 18, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. We see here in verse 18 that the matter is actually even worse than we originally thought. Not only has Onesimus fled, but he has most likely stolen money from his master. He has stolen money from him. So not only does he already have this capital offense stacked against him for running, he has stolen money to actually make the journey possible. And Paul says, charge it to my account. I'll take it. I will take on his debts. Paul is acting as a living Christ. Someone who has taken <coughs> our debts and put them upon himself. He is acting as a minister of reconciliation, reconciling Onesimus to Philemon in the same way that Christ has reconciled us to God. This is the very same thing that Paul is doing. Now he says, I write this with my own hand, I will repay it. And here we see a bit of persuasion. He says, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. We find out here that Paul has also converted Philemon. So Philemon owes Paul, in a sense, his very life. Because Paul is the one who converted Philemon. <laughs> he says, okay, fine. You have some money that was stolen. I'll repay it. To say nothing that I have given you your very life. Right? Think of the parable of the person who's been forgiven a huge debt, and then he goes and harps on the guy that owes him 20 bucks. Right? Paul is saying, this is what you're doing here. You've been forgiven much. 
you have been reconciled to God. It is now your turn. It is now your turn to show that you understand what God has done for you by doing it for others. This is at the heart of reconciliation. If you'll flip over to Ephesians. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 13. We see that even though Paul is writing to several different churches, right, and all of these churches have different issues, but there are themes that run through Paul. There are themes that are always going to show up, and it is this idea of reconciliation and partnership and unity within the church. So in chapter 2, verse 13, we're going to read, But now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile, there it is again, us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here once again we have this theme, reconciliation and unity, partnership. We have been reconciled. We were once far off. We have now been brought near. Not only this, but we together are united. We compose a holy temple. And it says that it's growing, that it is moving. The church is heading somewhere. So finally, with Philemon, he concludes, Confident of your obedience, this is in verse 21, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Verse 21, he says, I'm confident. I'm confident of your obedience. I don't have to command you to do it. I know that the gospel is working in you as well, Philemon. I know that the gospel is working so that when you see Philemon, I'm sorry, when you see Onesimus, you will be reconciled. We find out in Colossians chapter 4 that Onesimus is the one carrying the letter. Philemon is reading this as he's looking at Onesimus. Mm -hmm. And the very fact that we have this letter preserved gives us a good indication that Philemon did reconcile with Onesimus. We know that this story has a happy ending. That they were brought together because Philemon recognized now not only is Paul my partner, but Onesimus is as well. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, but all are one in Christ. That is the way that we must view each other if we are going to move forward. 
Um, and so I have in your worship guide a few questions that I hope you will spend some time on um, throughout this week and maybe ask yourself. Uh, the first is, how would you define the gospel? And how necessary is the church community for the gospel? If you were to define the gospel, would you need the church in order to accomplish it? Or could you do it by yourself? Right. What does genuine persuasion and love look like? And how can we avoid the danger of its misuse and manipulation? The Christian community is not just about fellowship, but about partnership. How can we work for unity among our brothers and sisters in Christ? And where in the world do you see a need for reconciliation? What place in your life right now needs to be reconciled? To God or to each other? What barriers are standing in your way and how can we work on removing them? I want to close um, by reading once again from Lewis. He just says it better. Um, So uh, this is from his book, Problem of Pain, if I didn't mention it before. He says, God wills our good, and our good is to love him. And to love him, we must know him, and if we know him, we shall in fact fall on our faces. Yet the call is not only to prostration and awe, it is to a reflection of the divine life, a creaturely participation in the divine attributes, which is far beyond our present desires. We are bidden to put on Christ, to become like God. That is, whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need, not what we think we want. Once more, we are embarrassed by the intolerable compliment, by too much love, not too little. Let's pray.